This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, actor Busy Phillips, co-stars in the series Girls 5 Eva, which begins its third season next month on Netflix. It's just one of the Tina Fey projects Phillips has premiering this year. She's also in the new movie musical version of the 2004 film Mean Girls. Busy Phillips spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenato. Here's Anne-Marie. Busy Phillips has been involved in projects lousy with teenagers, dating back to her breakout role on the critically acclaimed but canceled show Freaks and Geeks. She was 19, playing tough girl Kim Kelly. Since then, she starred in Dawson's Creek, Cougar Town, and Vice Principals. She wins people over with her comedic work on TV shows and movies, but she also does it with her honest, straightforward approach to talking directly to her fans. She does it through social media, her podcasts, and her writing. In her best-selling memoir, This Will Only Hurt a Little, she writes about her childhood and her career, including candid, hilarious, and also heartbreaking stories about the rejection and misogyny she's dealt with in Hollywood and in the rest of her life. Before we talk about all of that, let's hear her in her latest film, Mean Girls, which is the movie version of the musical based on the 2004 movie written by and starring Tina Fey. All versions of Mean Girls are based on the nonfiction book Queen Bees and Wannabes about the complicated and cruel power dynamics teen girls live with. Busy Phillips plays the mother of the queen bee, Regina George. In this scene, the group of popular girls, which includes Regina, her friends, and the new girl, Katie, are in Regina's room. Mrs. George comes in and tries to make nice with the girls. Oh, Regina, you're never going to believe what I found in your closet this morning. Why are you in my closet? Because I'm doing that Japanese organizing thing where you take a little nap in the closet. (gasps) I found your burn book. (gasps) Katie, this is just like the funniest thing that the girls used to do. Please leave. You got it, baby. But girls, I'm going to be right downstairs. If you need to talk to me about anything, I mean it, deep stuff or boy troubles or blackheads or... Alcohol poisoning. You know I have been through it all. Honey, I am not a regular mom. I'm at cool mom with six O's. Hashtag aging Holly. Hashtag get up. Okay. Girls, just have so much fun. (laughs) Remember, these are the best days of your life. It does not get better. Busy Phillips, welcome to Fresh Air. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a dream. What did the original movie Mean Girls mean to you when it came out in 2004? Oh, God, just that I was jealous that I wasn't in it. (laughs) You know, to be honest, just another job I didn't get. Um, No, I loved the original, but I was salty that I wasn't, that I I couldn't even audition for it because we were filming, I was filming White Chicks. And, um, or I'd already gotten the part for White Chicks, the filming was overlapping, and no shade to White Chicks, although all shade to White Chicks, because at the time, <laughs> when it when White Chicks came out, it was, like, universally panned, people hated it, it was, like, honestly embarrassing that I was in it, in the industry and the world at large. Now, perspective is everything, and I am very happy to say 
that over the years I realized what uh, an actual cult classic White Chicks has become. And I'm so proud that I was in that ridiculous movie in 2004. (laughs) Did you have any hesitation about doing this role, given how classic the Amy Poehler cool mom scene is in the original movie? Um, The truth of the matter is I have now been working with Tina Fey and the Little Stranger Company, her company, her production company, for the, the last seven or so years, pretty consistently. And so when Tina calls and says to me, um, I have a job for you, uh, who the <laughs> heck am I to say, oh, you know what? No, thanks. That's just those are shoes I don't want to fill. I think what's so funny and sad about the Mrs. George character in the original movie is that she's trying so hard to be one of the girls and sort of relive her high school through her daughters, and her daughter hates it. Also, Mm -hmm. her daughter is terrible to her and to the other girls, and maybe that has to do with Mrs. George. But I wonder what you think about that original character and the way you see her, you know, in the new movie, like that, that, like being so thirsty, I guess. (laughs) You know, it's really interesting because when Tina wrote the original Mean Girls and Amy was starring as Mrs. George in it, neither one of them, I I don't even know if Tina had her eldest daughter yet. That's right. I I don't know. I mean, I know for a fact Amy wasn't a mom yet. Um, But what was so interesting to me was just how much I related to Mrs. George in this moment (laughs) as... You know, I, I'm like, I'm a young mom. I am cool. Um, and people think I'm cool. By the way, I am famous. People think I'm cool. But you are just never cool to your kids, ever, as much as you want it. You know, in the musical, in the original musical, um, Mrs. George just has one little snippet of a song, mm-hmm. and it's a reprise from the song that Gretchen sings, What's Wrong With Me. And to me, watching that on the stage in the theater with my own kids next to me was when I just cried. Um, And I feel like I tried to, I tried the best I could to sort of imbue the character with that thing of like, she's been waiting her whole life to have girlfriends who love her and she has these girls around her and she's still on the outside looking in and she's like even as a mom what's wrong with me I just think it's so deeply relatable and sad and like it just kind of breaks your heart I know Tina Faye asked you to do this part in Mean Girls, and this is now a few projects that you've worked on with Tina, including your talk show Busy Tonight and the comedy Girls 5 Eva. What's it like working with her on projects, and what uh, does her career mean to you? Because she definitely like came up on SNL, you know, very male-dominated comedy structure, but she also famously works with a lot of her female comedian friends. Well, look, I don't know how I got so lucky, <laughs> except that I'll take it. And I'm so and I'm so glad. I'm so grateful for it. Because I did spend so much of my early career wanting to be in 
the boys club of comedy and always feeling like, I don't understand why I'm not. I don't understand why I don't get, I don't know. I just don't get it. Why am I not (laughs) in this club? (laughs) You know, and even to the, you know, the point of like Judd and working with those guys again and again for a while, um, when I was in my early 20s, I, I do remember feeling like, well, wait, why can't, why am I not the girl in Knocked Up? Or what, you know, like, what's <laughs> happening here? Um, and then to have Tina come in and, and I was such a huge, huge fan of hers. Um, of course, like, her career meant everything to me. Um, like, there was nothing better than 30 Rock, I, I mean, to me. I just, it made me laugh so hard, and I didn't understand how there were so many jokes. Like, God, right. it was so like, dense. It's so <laughs> dense. I mean, that's what sometimes on Girls 5 Eva, I'm like, I don't even know what this is, but I'm going to say it because I assume it's a joke. You know, yeah. like, like, I don't know what it is. Um, but anyway, so Tina, you know, to get to work with her, because I've gotten to work with her in so many different capacities, both, um, you know, as a producer who's pitching me jokes for my show, you know, helping us break it and figure out what it is. Um, and then uh, giving me, giving me, handing me these mm-hmm. amazing roles. Well, I want to ask you about Girls 5 Eva, which comes back for its third season in March this time on Netflix. Um, let's hear a scene from it, um, from the pilot. The group hasn't seen each other in years, and they're living their lives separately. But a hip-hop artist has used an old song of theirs, their main hit, as a sample. And so their music is being heard again, um, and they get a little bit of money for it. Um, if this scene begins with a clip from the past where uh, your character Summer introduced herself and then the scene cuts to where they are now and Sarah Bareilles' character is visiting your character Summer for the first time in years. Let's listen. I'm Summer and the media trainer said to repeat the question in my answer so why don't you introduce yourself Summer. Thanks Carson. I'm Summer. Oh my god! John! Shut up! during Peloton. We are back. What are we going to do? You know, Carnival has a 90s-themed cruise that goes around the Pacific Garbage Patch. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, I just have your licensing check. Oh. It expires on Friday, so... Oh, and I brought you this baby gift that I've had for you for, like, five ever. That is so sweet. Thank you. Oh, come. You have to meet Stevia. But don't touch her. She's not vaccinated. Oh, my God, you guys. <laughs> That's a scene from the first episode of Girls 5 Eva. And I think what's great about the show is how it pokes fun at the music industry or entertainment and how the industry treats both women in the past as well as in the current day. Um, can you share any of this crazy things that were said to you or things that were asked of you? Um, God, so many things were asked of me. I mean, I've been asked to lose weight like a, a billion times. When have I not been asked to lose weight? Uh, well, Tina didn't ask me to lose weight and um, and Paul, Paul yeah. didn't ask me to lose weight. Um, but after that, forget it. It was just a constant stream of losing weight. 
Uh, minus white chicks, but in the script, it legitimately says they're fat friend. That's how my character is described. I was a size eight at the time. Okay. <laughs> they're fat friend. That's okay. Anyway, um, but yeah, like uh, I was asked, I was told at one point to consider removing, having all of my moles removed on my neck and my face and my body. Um, and I was like, I don't understand that. I think it'll just be really horrific looking scars. Um, my dad's had some moles removed for biopsies. It doesn't look great, guys. I'm not going to lie. Um, I was told by a head of casting at a studio that I wasn't going to have any kind of film career unless I did a Maxim, FHM, uh, Stuff magazine, uh, one of the girl like at the time it was these, you know, these magazines and the casting, the head of casting was like, I get a call from the executive when it comes, when the Maxim mm-hmm. Hot 100 comes out and they, they have, um, they've circled the girls that they want to put in movies and you're not going to be circled. You're not going to be on that list unless you do it. Now, I want to ask you about Freaks and Geeks, which was your first big TV show. Mm -hmm. It was on TV from 1999 to 2000. Um, It was a show by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, and it launched a lot of actors' careers. I wanted to play a scene from the pilot, and I believe this might have been the scene that you did when you were auditioning for the role. You play Kim Kelly, a tough girl who has no trouble making fun of people at school and is skeptical of the main character, Lindsay, and she's mean to her, too. Um, In this scene, though, (laughs) you're in the hallway at school and you're making fun of Sam Weir, who's the younger brother, played by John Francis Daly. A geek. Got a problem? Uh, no. I I was just looking at a friend of mine. Are you telling me that I look like a friend of yours? Hey, Kim. I think he likes you. Is that true? Do you like me? Do you love me? I, I like you like a friend. I don't think so. I think you like me like me. I think you want to kiss me. Do you want to kiss me? I I don't know. Come on. Just one little kiss. I'll be your girlfriend. (laughs) In your dreams, geek. Is that my voice? (laughs) That's a scene from the first episode of the show, Freaks and Geeks. Now, you've said, you know, the character Kim, she's had a difficult family life and she was tough and aggressive and maybe that was because that's what she had experienced herself growing up and i'm just wondering what what you related to most about kim kelly because you really captured her you do such a good job with her i think that so much of what i was doing was was just very intuitive and yeah there was a a girl in my high school that when I read the character reminded me a little bit of Kim and she scared me so much. And also like 
the anger. I related so deeply to anger. And I had so much of it. it at 19, I had so much of it. I mean, I still have so much of it. You know, I like, work, I like still, I'm like meditating and do my therapy <laughs> and like taking my shoes off and trying to ground myself. Like I do all the things, you know what I mean? Like, um, but I do have that thing. And it comes from a lot of different places. But I think that, yeah, for Kim, it, it really comes out of just feeling misunderstood and not having, you know, parents at home who trusted her. But I also, like, really related to Kim in terms of being a person who was smart, but that didn't necessarily translate to the subjects that were being taught in school in the ways that they were teaching it in school in a, you know, just very basic public school system. So, you know, I related to that a lot. Freaks and Geeks was a show about teenagers, and you were a teenager when you started it, as were some of the other stars on the show. Can you describe what that set was like? You know, and that's, of course, over 20 years ago. I was 19 when I did the pilot of Freaks and Geeks. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the the set was incredible. Um, everyone was really young. Judd Apatow and Paul Feig and Jake Kasdan were really at the, you know, they were the at the helm. And they were so respectful of all of us, all of us kids, as being, like, valid (laughs) and having a voice in what we were doing. And, like, I didn't understand that that's not how television worked Mm -hmm. (laughs) or movies or entertainment, for that matter, because it felt so um, collaborative. And... Yeah, like you said, I mean, some of the kids, Martin Starr and um, Sam Levine and um, John Francis Daly, I mean, they were in, they were 14, 15, 16. Seth was, I think, 17 when we started. Jason and I are the same age, and um, James Franco is a little bit older, and Linda was, like, the oldest. But... um you know, we had no right to be <laughs> to collaborating with these people. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just saying that it's not the norm. Like the way that they made that show was with such heart and such um, love for the characters. And they really extended that to us in a way that was so, I know now, rare mm-hmm. and and so generous and so... You know, if one of us was like, I don't know if I don't know how to say this or this line is, well, how would you say it? How would Kim, how would just do it? Do it how you would do it. To your point and your question and how things have changed, like Freaks and Geeks is not the barometer Mm. for how the industry was at the time. I can tell you about auditions where I would be told by my agents, well, you know, this executive really likes boobs. So if you could wear a push-up bra, that would be great. Or, you know, like, I mean, there were a million different examples of the 
the blatant misogyny and insanity and also like just the sort of um, this is the way it is. is There's never going to change. The best you can do um, is try to assimilate yourself to this culture in any way that you can and, you know, hope for the best because you are replaceable. So let's not make waves, you know, in any major way. Um, But as far as like the way that they treated us on set, it was very respectful. Busy Phillips co-stars in the new film Mean Girls, which is now available online, and her TV show Girls 5 Eva returns for a third season next month on Netflix. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, The Sympathizer Podcast from HBO. Host Philip Wynn joins the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Listen to The Sympathizer Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns and Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. Hi there, it's Tanya Mosley here to share more about my new series of Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. I love when he cast his mom in movies. It feels so authentic. I know. You know, she was also in the film Goodfellas, which yeah. I also love. I need to get that screenplay, by the way. I don't have that one. <laughs> For the next few weeks leading up to the Academy Awards, I'll be talking about all of my favorite movies with my colleague Anne-Marie Baldonado. If you want to hear what movies I love and which screenplays I actually own and use as creative direction, sign up for Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. In your memoir, This Will Only Hurt a Little, which was published in uh, 2018, you write about, you know, how grateful you are for this series. Um, But that, you know, it wasn't without like some bad experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. And one reason why you felt that way is because on almost all sets, boys and girls were treated differently. For example, James Franco was kind of revered on set. And at one point, you have a physical altercation with him. And it didn't seem like they completely took care of you. Um, for those who don't know the story um, that we're referring to, uh, there was a scene where you were in one. Okay, so the one sentence is that there was a we were kids. James and I had a hard time working together. 
Um, but there was one particular day, there was a scene we were doing where we get like pelted with water balloons and then we run after a car and we're mad and we're going to go do something. We're going to go get the guys or whatever. And um, from the other school. And uh, the director had given me a note. I, my line was, damn it, Daniel, do something. And then he's like, what do you want me to do? Look, it screams at me. Because the the characters, the two characters, Kim and Daniel, had this very sort of like intense, like borderline kind of abusive, like yelling at each other a lot and being kind of mean to each other. And um, but anyways, the director gave me a direction that when I said the line to like smack him with the back of my hand on the chest, like "Damn it, Daniel, do something!" You know, like how you would kind of do that, mm-hmm. like the and. So we get hit by the water balloon, turn around. I say, damn it, Daniel, do something and hit him on the chest. And then James Franco, the actor, (laughs) grabbed me and screamed in my face, like, don't you ever effing touch me. And then threw me to the ground, Um, like with such force that it like really knocked the wind out of me. Like I was like very, it was... And they cut and people like ran over and they were like, what's going on? This is, that was great. What was that? Did you, what, what's happening? You know, and I had to, I had to go take a minute. I was very shaken up. Yeah. The director came and was like, can you do one more? I still don't have it. And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and so then we went back and did it again. I did not do the hitting thing. He didn't say a thing to me. And then I went into uh, Linda Cardellini's trailer and, like, sobbed hysterically. And and was her who told you to say something, right? Yeah. She – there were – yeah, I and I can't remember exactly why, but there were – but, like, Paul and Judd had to be in some other meeting that at that – it was, like, just, like, a confluence of circumstances. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, they weren't there on set mm-hmm. in that moment. It was – it was mm-hmm. rough. Well, were you scared at all about describing some of your experiences and using names? No. I mean, look, truly, it's I actually think this is interesting. In retrospect, I wish I'd known a few things writing this this book. So if you are out there and you're an actress who's writing a memoir, let me fill you in. Number one, I should have sent copies early to everybody involved. And I didn't know that was a thing. And I guess I wish that the people that had done books before, like my agent, my book agent at the time, or my editor at the time had suggested that, like manuscripts, you know, galleys or whatever, just so that they could have been prepared. Because not that I would have even changed it, but I do think that there's something to the surprise of a situation. And I think that person who was really pissed at me Someone involved closely to the show, and it wasn't James Franco or any, you know, um, was responding to more, like, hadn't even read it yet. Was It was more like the press of it. Mm. Oh, and that's the second thing I want to say about it. That it wasn't lost on me that I write this entire book about my experience being a woman right. in this industry. And all of the headlines the week before the book came out were about James Franco. Like, barely any of them even had my name in it. In your memoir, you say this thing about acting that I would like you to read. Mm. Okay. All right. I'm going to read this. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. It's not easy to be a woman in this business. There will always be jokes about your body. 
there will always be guys who steal your best ideas and pass them off as their own. There will always be actors who push you to the ground. There will always be networks that ask you to lose weight. There will always be jobs you will not get based on your looks. And the men will continue to support one another and show up for one another and hire one another. But if you want to stick around, girl, you better be damn sure you smile when they ask and wear a low-cut top to your network test and lose the weight and let them take credit for your words because you are expendable. You talk about how you always felt like you wanted to be seen um, and this was a way to do so. But why <laughs> why put yourself into the situation where you're always being evaluated and put through the ringer like this? Well, I guess I suppose because like everything, it's a slow burn. You just like want something so badly, you know. I love playing characters. Even if I'm just given a, a small little... You know, I'm in the Mean Girls movie for, I don't know, 10 minutes? I have no idea. Not that long. But I love figuring out what makes that character kind of heartbreaking, too. And how can I show that in just these few lines and these couple scenes? And I don't know. How can we? How can I show the full range of, of, of personhood and these characters that I would play sometimes that would be kind of two-dimensional on the page. And they wanted a thing. They want a dumb blonde or they want a whatever. And yeah, I, I just loved it. So I was sort of willing. And I was also told it was the price of admission. Mm -hmm. If someone tells you what the price of admission is for your dream, you get to say like, okay, I guess if that's the price of admission, okay, I can do it. I'm like strong enough. I'm like confident enough in myself that I can handle the jabs, I can handle the jokes. By the way, it's nothing that's not happening in every other industry. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I can do this. You know, and it does wear on you. It wears on all of us, of course. You find out that, like, the guy you're working with who works, you know, two days a week and you're there every single day is making four times what you are an episode. Like, yeah, sucks. Now, you grew up in Arizona. You had been telling your mom that you wanted to get an agent ever since you were in third grade. What made mm -hmm. you so sure? Like, what did you love about saying that you wanted to be an actor? Well, you know, I had a lisp when I was little. I was like Cindy Brady, which mm. is a reference. I don't know. People, you never know. When I, when I say that now, people are like, huh? Um, Our listeners are older. I know. That's true. That is true. <laughs> But in case you're not, um, I couldn't say my R's or my T-H's or my S's uh, in first grade and second grade. And then I got a speech therapist and I would get like a penny every time I would say, you know, like it, it wasn't a lot of money, guys, that I was <laughs> getting for saying my words correctly. It didn't motivate me. But there was a talent show and my mom thought. I, I was, like, always performing, you know, my whole life. And so my mom kind of convinced me to do this poem in the talent show, which had a lot of the aforementioned letters that were hard for me. <laughs> um, but I worked so hard on it because I, I wanted to do really well and I wanted to make people laugh. It was like a silly poem. And 
and I did it, and it felt so good. And then I was like, oh, this is the thing. Everybody has to look at me, and if I do it right, they're going to laugh, and they're going to clap, and everybody's going to be looking at me. So that kind of started it. Busy Phillips, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and I'm sorry I talk so much. (laughs) Busy Phillips spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Phillips stars in the TV series Girls 5 Eva, which returns for its third season in March. She also stars in the new musical film adaptation of Mean Girls, which is now available for streaming. Coming up... Ken Tucker reviews a new solo album from musician and singer Mary Timoney, who was on Rolling Stone's list last year of the greatest guitarists of all time. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. The guitarist, songwriter, and singer Mary Timoney has just released her first solo album in 15 years. It's called Untame the Tiger, and rock critic Ken Tucker thinks it represents a new high point in her varied, adventurous career. Timoney was on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest guitarists of all time, published last year, and she's familiar to indie rock fans as a member of bands such as Helium, X-Hex, and Wild Flag. Ken says this solo album is a marvelous collection, dealing with strong, sometimes contradictory emotions. Timoney's guitar playing over a 30-plus years career has been characterized by a firmness, an unyielding flintiness that conveys a confidence in making music, even when the songs themselves are detailing doubt, vulnerability, or loneliness. 
Her new album, Untame the Tiger, unfolds like a journey in which the traveler maps her emotions onto every scene. In the song Dominoes, for example, Timoney adds to the list of great rock and roll road songs, singing about going 90 in the wrong direction, riding next to someone whom she's decided she's no longer in love with. She doesn't feel trapped in that car, though. If anything, she's feeling the power she has to control her destiny. When you said it was forever, you looked me right in the eye. The next second you were gone, that's when I The song Don't Disappear, a lyric about comforting a troubled friend, could also be Timony talking to herself, perhaps without realizing it. When she reaches the chorus of the song, Timony lifts her voice and her guitar into a brighter, sunnier place. She sings harmony with herself and plucks out chords that would fit right into a Beach Boys song, saying, Don't be afraid, and uses an odd, soothing phrase I've got you in my brain parade. time here, the music is made by a core trio of guitar, bass, and drums. Some of the prettiest drumming is done by Dave Maddox, the 75-year-old former member of Fairport Convention, going strong. Timoney's vocals are so plain-spoken, her details so vivid, it's as though she's recording the audiobook of a novel she's written. Thought I was with you But now my brain is running hard and I'm counting all the rain. Wanna go where your animal runs free? I hear it call my name. What do I get from loving you? Just this song about the pain. That's from the title song, Untame the Tiger. At about five and a half minutes long, it features a languid, dreamy instrumental intro before her vocal abruptly picks up the pace. The song becomes a piece of brisk pop music about realizing a relationship you thought was over is still very much alive. It's the tiger that hasn't been tamed. Her words try to downplay the intensity of these thoughts. At one point, she calls Untame the Tiger 
just this song about the pain. But Timoney's words are contradicted by her guitar playing, a gorgeous galloping solo that becomes the heart of the song. example of the range of sounds Timoney taps into here. On The Guest, Timoney makes her guitar do the work of a country music pedal steel guitar, creating a high, keening sound that rises up to meet her as she greets her old friend, Loneliness. Once listening to this album, I was reminded of something Carrie Brownstein, her bandmate in the group Wild Flag, once wrote describing her friend's guitar playing. This is the sound a wound makes. On Untame the Tiger, it sounds as though the wound is healing. Ken Tucker reviewed Mary Timoney's new album called Untame the Tiger. After we take a short break, TV critic David Bianculi will review the new miniseries Shogun. It's based on the James Clavell novel that was also adapted into a 1980 miniseries that starred Richard Chamberlain. This is Fresh Air. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. The 1980 NBC miniseries Shogun was one of the most highly acclaimed dramas at the height of the miniseries era. It starred Richard Chamberlain as an English sailor finding himself in Japan in 1600. Now a new adaptation, also based on the same book by James Clavell, 
comes to television in a 10-part miniseries premiering today on FX. It starts streaming on Hulu tomorrow. Our TV critic David Bianculi has this review. The original Shogun on NBC showed up when miniseries were the hottest things on television. ABC's Roots had broken all ratings records just three years before, and three years later, the star of Shogun, Richard Chamberlain, would score another massive miniseries hit with ABC's The Thornbirds. But even then, in 1980, adapting James Clavell's sprawling story of an English sea pilot's adventures in Japan in the year 1600 was quite a gamble. The original version avoided subtitles, for the most part, to reflect the confusion the newly arrived pilot, John Blackthorne, felt when encountering Japanese culture and its people. Except for occasional narration by Orson Welles, who sometimes threw in some radio-style acting by interpreting what a warlord was saying, most viewers in 1980 were as clueless as the sailor in the story. Eventually, things became a bit clearer when one of the Japanese rulers, Lord Torinaga, appointed a trusted translator, Lady Mariko, to whom the pilot became increasingly and dangerously attracted. Part of the great appeal of that miniseries was the powerful performance by Toshiro Mufune. Foreign film fans at the time knew him as the star of the original Seven Samurai. But the chemistry between Chamberlain as Blackthorn and the Japanese actress Yoko Shimada as his translator Mariko was a big part of it, too. Your bravery is greater than mine, lady. Uh, no, please. You must not say that. But that is the truth. How do you say truth in Japanese? Honto. Then it is Honto that you are braver than I. You are brave and you are beautiful. You have a honey tongue, Anjin-san. But you are beautiful. Is Hanto as well? Here it is not wise to notice another man's woman. This new interpretation of Shogun, adapted for TV by the married writing team of Rachel Kondo and Justin Marks, uses subtitles throughout, a choice that makes the narrative more immediately understandable. It also focuses just as strongly and just as effectively on the same three central figures. Lord Torinaga is played by Hiroyuki Sanada, who's so imposing that even his silences are powerful. The translator, Lady Mariko, is played by Anna Sawai, who brings to her character even more strength, mystery, and charisma than in the 1980 version. And instead of the matinee-idle handsome Chamberlain as pilot John Blackthorne, we have Cosmo Jarvis, an actor who looks more ruggedly handsome and sounds a lot like Richard Burton. It takes a while for the three characters and actors to share the screen, but when they finally do, it's entrancing. Good morning, senor. I am to be your interpreter for today. You speak Portuguese. It is my honor to learn the language of my Christian teachers. Catholic teachers. I serve Yoshito Ranagasama. My name is Todamariku. John Blackthorn. Man, you should know I'm not Catholic. Anji ni tsutaite kure. Kotabi no roiri taigi de atta to. My lord would like to say that he is sorry for the time you spent in prison. I'm grateful to be alive. This new Shogun has other strong performances as well, but they're not the only things that make this 2024 version so successful. 
Special and visual effects have improved exponentially in the almost 45 years since the original Shogun was televised, and it shows here. Every storm at sea, every battle scene, and especially every earthquake is rendered with excitement and credibility. And finally, there's the overarching story, which has Torinaga employing Blackthorn as his secret weapon in a deadly civil war. The power grabs among the five rulers are like the hostilities in the Game of Thrones, except instead of a red wedding, there's a crimson sky. I went back and re-watched the original Shogun to see if it holds up. It does. But the several directors who worked on Shogun for FX deliver a new version that looks much more stunning. It's sexier, more violent, and even more thought-provoking and illuminating than the original. All of which, in this context, are meant as compliments. The first two episodes of Shogun are televised on FX opening night and streamed the next day on Hulu, with the remaining episodes presented weekly. Don't miss it. With this Shogun, as with the original, the TV miniseries is alive and well. David Bianculi is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new miniseries Shogun, premiering today on FX. It starts streaming on Hulu tomorrow. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, the director of the sci-fi epic Dune Part 1 and the new Dune Part 2, which opens this week. We talk with French-Canadian filmmaker Denis Villeneuve, who also directed Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and Sicario. He'll talk about the work that inspired him from Jaws to comic books. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Teresa Madden. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash SparkCashPlus. Terms and conditions apply. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.